I'm glad he established those terms before I had already decided that I, I might not get into the realm of telling stories on him because he could do the same for me. So, And I will say, if I had known, he said, anticipating that we'd be in the other space, he had said he didn't expect that we'd have a PowerPoint. If I'd known we actually had this screen, I would have brought the picture because uh, it's, it's pretty hilarious. Uh, but certainly me and Blake, we go way back, and um, I will uh, uh, I'll just say I, uh, I, I love it. Uh, I, uh, if I tried to say two more, I, I'm an emotional guy. You'll maybe figure that out before this is over with. Um, but uh, we go way back, and uh, I know he loves the Lord. And um, it's through him and through people like uh, Josh Lewis, who I'm sure um, any of you that have been here for a time, him and his wife Kirby, I know them. And so I've heard of your faith, uh, and I'm very encouraged to be here this morning. And as I... Um, begin uh, this lesson and and, uh, I'm going to be talking with you during this time about the church. Um, What's great is that most of my lesson has already seemingly been preached this morning. I mean, we started with uh, a class period where we uh, went through the Psalm of Ascents and and talked about praising and worshiping our God um, and talked about the joy of doing that together with one voice. Uh, And then we've done that together this morning and we've sung about the church and, and the comments and things, and even just being here and seeing you here and knowing that it doesn't matter that you're in this place, a place that has an extremely nice view. It's one of the nicest views I've ever uh, uh, seen here in Atlanta. Um, that it wouldn't have mattered if you had been just down the street in this Hampton Inn. It wouldn't have mattered if you had had to go out into uh, the park down here. None of that would have mattered because what matters, and this is hopefully if there's just one thing that I could drive home today um, through scripture about the church is, uh, well, I'll just say it uh, in this way, um, a personal story, Um, is that when I was a kid, I don't know about you guys, but there was this, uh, there was this thing that, that I had learned and I, I, maybe even from a Bible class. And, um, and, and as I say this, it wasn't that there was people maliciously like teaching false doctrine. I'm not saying that, but, but here's how how, how it went. It said, uh, here's the church. And here's the steeple, and open it up, and here's the people, right? Maybe you've heard that before, right? So, and then there was all this conversation, there's that, and then we always would, we would go to church, right? That's what we, that's where, a place, it was, it was where we went. We'd go to church. Um, and, um, you know, uh, and, then, and then as I got older, uh, uh, people at, at school, you know, we might have conversations, and, and, and it would come up. Oh, uh, so you're a Christian. And uh, yeah, yeah, I am. What's the follow-up question to, to that, where we live? Where do you go to church? We all know that, right? Have you had that experience? And, um, and so, so, so having said all of that, um, from my personal experience growing up, what happens, I think, when we, not that it's wrong to use the phrase, go to church, right? I don't, I'm not saying that, that you just got to, you can't do that or you'd be wrong. What I'm saying is, is that, is that it started as we speak a lot of times, sometimes we don't realize what we're internalizing. And what I started to think was that church was that thing that we did three times a week or two times a week or however many times I would go to that place for however many hours I spent in that building uh, where I went. That that's what it meant to uh, that's what the church was. Um, and certainly as you kind of come to, to study scripture, you start to realize 
fundamentally that, that no, the, the church is, this isn't the church, uh, you know, whether it has a steeple or if, it, if it's a room like this or if it's a room over there, that this infrastructure, that's not the church. The church is the people. And it's, it's a beautiful blend of all sorts of people. And that's been made possible because of the work of what Jesus has done. And if there's nothing else that we can get from today, it's that, that thing. Is that, is that what's beautiful is today I get to be a part of, 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 of you all uh, and, and this local gathering. Um, but right now, we know that uh, in, in other places around the city, there's other Christians that are doing the same thing. And over in Auburn, where I'm from, they're doing the same thing. They're, they're gathering around the table. And, and there's a beautiful fellowship in that. When you realize that the network is not... Uh, as you might draw it, uh, just, just a bunch of lines that connect a bunch of buildings that have the correct sign out front. But instead, it's a network that at the center is Jesus. And all of the, the lines, they connect all of the people whom the Lord has added to his church. And so... What that helps me to do when I think of that, um, and as we'll use scripture, Ephesians chapter 2 is where we're going to start, is what it reminds me of. And if you're ever able, I mean, if you're ever traveling, you may have had this experience. One of the great joys is when you have the opportunity to worship with a group, maybe in another country or another state, a place that's not like your own. And you get there, and you may have an experience where you think, wow, this isn't exactly like. I'm used to it. It may actually make you feel a little uncomfortable at first because maybe they do the order a little differently or, or there's different things that they do that you're just not used to. Or maybe, maybe you go to a place where when they sing the last song, they gather around and maybe they join up in a huddle. And you're like, wow, that's weird. Who does that? You know, or, or different things that maybe make you feel uncomfortable at first, but then you realize it's not really that different at all, is it? It's in, they, there's all the unity in, in the Lord, in His Spirit, and in Jesus Christ. And what a great experience it is when we get to, to, to realize that the church is so much bigger than, than, than Atlanta and then my, my, home, my, my, home, my town where we live in Auburn or Birmingham where I grew up or, or, or America. The church is so much bigger than that. And how beautiful a thing that that is that right now, depending on the time zones, throughout this day as the sun moves across the earth, that everybody's going to be remembering just like we did, the death of Christ. So Ephesians chapter 2, what I want to get to now is that, is that what, what has helped me as I did this study, and I'm gonna, it's going to be very much of a broad overview because each one of these things, these images we get of the church, uh, each one of them could, uh, would be worth not one but many lessons to try to understand. And I'm just going to try to bring uh, just an overview of that, and hopefully you'll be able to do more personal study on it. But let's read. We already read First uh, Peter chapter 2, and hopefully as you read that, you were hearing things like living stones being built up on Jesus, the chief cornerstone that's making this, this spiritual house. Uh, the spiritual house. The building blocks being not gold or silver, but the people themselves. And, and hopefully you remember hearing the phrases like, Holy nation, people for God's own possession, right? Kingdom of priests. Those are things that we hear. So, so there's actually something that unifies these things, and hopefully you'll, you'll, you'll pick up on it uh, as we read a couple more uh, sections here. So it's, uh, Ephesians chapter 2. And here in the context of what, happened, what, what was a problem in a lot of places, if you've, if you've read any of the New Testament, you know that the issue of Gentiles i.e. anybody that was not a part of the Jewish 
uh, race or, the, or that, that country. Anybody that was an outsider, they just were the Gentiles, the nations. I think goyim maybe is the word in Hebrew. But it just was representative of either you're in, right, or uh, you're everybody else. And we're the special ones. And so that was a problem when the church comes because you have those groups. And how are they going to relate to each other? And here is Paul, and here's what he has to say about it. He says, therefore, remember, and it seems he's talking, uh, he says, formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh. So he's talking to Gentiles. Remember that you, who were called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, and if you know the history of Israel, you know that the circumcision was the mark, the distinctive mark, the thing that they came to hold very dear to themselves to say, this is us, this, we are different. We're different than all of them. And here's how you know. Uh, he says, you were formerly called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups... Hopefully you're tracking with what he's saying. What two groups? Jew and Gentile. So that is everybody. Who made both groups. Those two groups that had enmity between them. He brought them, uh, uh, brought them together um, into one in verse 14. And broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. By abolishing in the flesh the enmity. Which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. So that in himself he might make the two into one new man. Thus establish, establishing peace. And might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross. By having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access to one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. But you are fellow citizens with the saints. Citizens. And are of God's household. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. That sounds familiar. That's what Peter was saying. In whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. In whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place of God in the spirit. And so hopefully right now what you're seeing is that there's a unifying thing here. There is something that you, we could go back to and we could look at in terms of understanding what once was. So it will help us to understand what we are now and how it's better. And so the unifying thing that I've found is that a lot of times this, this language, this idea of having, being a part of the commonwealth, right? And no longer being aliens, outsiders like the Gentiles were, you've, been, and you've become fellow citizens. We're of the same nation now. And we're of the same, we're, we're, we're one house now, right? And we're one family now. And it's, it's, it's really imaging off of Israel, right? And if, if you need anything, any encouragement to, to essentially not dismiss, what, this much of your Bible right here? To say, ah, that was soul kept coming, right? Forget all that. Hopefully what uh, this conversation will do for you is realize, if I don't know a lot about Israel, I need to go back. And if I don't know a lot about what Israel, how God revealed himself to Israel, it's of great use for me. We talked this morning about the Psalms. Why is it important that we go back and why are we still reading the Psalms? And why is, why is what they were doing when they were ascending to the temple, why is that even relevant to us today? We're not, clearly we're not in the temple right now, are we? We're not making the trip to Jerusalem, right? So why in the world is that relevant to us? It's because that's, God was always pointing forward to a new country. 
new citizenship, a new house, a new temple, uh, and, and, and all of these different things that we're going to develop. And you may notice that the word church was not used there. There's actually another passage. I was thinking about that as I was going through it. And he certainly is talking to Christians. But look over in Hebrews. It's even more explicit over here. Hebrews uh, chapter 12. For you have not come, in verse 18, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched, to a blazing fire, to darkness and gloom and whirlwind, the blast of a trumpet, sound of words, which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further uh, word be spoken to them. If, if, if you aren't familiar with the Old Testament, what he's describing is the moment that Israel, having been redeemed by God and saved from their captivity, been delivered from slavery. Now they stand at the foot of a mountain that is shaking before them, and they're they're seeing smoke come down and the sound of trumpet. And I can't imagine what that sight, how terrifying a sight that would have been. And what the Hebrew writer is saying is, is we've actually got something that's even better than that. Uh, we're experiencing something that's even more impressive. And he says, uh, for for they cannot bear the command. If even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said. I am full of fear and trembling, but you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God. We had Zion come up in our Psalms of Ascents, didn't we? That's, the, that's where the, the trajectory was always headed, was to Zion itself. And that's where uh, this group that he's talking to has come. We've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem. Not, not a place on a map, but, but to heaven itself and the myriads of angels and to, listen to this, the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. So all of that, I mean, it's basically, I mean, sometimes it helps me to just, I think about Israel, and think about what I've learned about it, but it's really hard to appreciate what it would have been like to have lived as a Jew, as one of these Jews we talked about, maybe, that's in Babylonian captivity and is reading God's law and reading the prophets and, and reciting the Psalms and just wondering, where, where is it headed? How is God going to deliver on the promises He's made? Where is He right now? And, and what is our hope when we are now just obscurely scattered amongst the nations? We don't even have a temple anymore. Um, and then once Jesus came, you have guys like Paul and Peter uh, and the Hebrew writer, who all of a sudden they see it so clearly, and they realize this is what it was always all about. All about. Certainly, there was the old and the new, but this is—it's—it's it's both continuous and discontinuous. It's—it's—it's it's, it's something that is new. That means it's—you it, it, put the other behind, and the Hebrew writer talks about that. But it's also a continuous. Uh, string of, of the, the story starting back from the beginning. Genesis 1 was always on the trajectory. It was not a new plan. It was always God's plan to bring about and this, and this is a perfect point for us to talk about. So what do we learn from Israel? They were his covenant people, right? So what is co what's that all about? Well, go back and let's look at the beginning. Genesis uh, chapter 12. And this is where uh, if you go back and you start reading Genesis this is a pretty hard pivot in the storyline, because to this point, we have been just flying through human history at a rapid pace. We've gone through hundreds of years and generations, and all of a sudden the story just slows down, and it zooms in, and, and, and to the point that you get through the first 11 chapters, you don't have a lot of hope for, for mankind, 
right? They've done, they, they, it started well in the first two chapters, and then after that, it just goes very poorly. And by the time you get to 11, you're wondering, how is this going to be? How is God going to restore blessings to humanity? And then he comes and he shows up and he starts talking to this guy named Abram. Now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country, from your relatives, from your father's house to a land I'll show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you, make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curse, curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Anybody hear a word that sounded very, and it just kept coming up? Bless, right? Blessings. And here's the funny thing, is that this is the beginning. This is what every Jew, Paul, Peter, before they really got it, they'd be hanging their hat on this. This is when God showed up and he chose us. We are the family. Abraham is our father. And the nations, they're going to have to come, if you go and connect this further on down the line with the prophet's vision, like Isaiah, Mount Zion, the nations are streaming to the mountain itself. I, I have a feeling they felt like, well, yeah, that, that'll happen, right? But... But they're going to have to come through us because we're the special ones. Look, God said, he said, he told Abraham, I'm going to bless you. But what else, is, what else is a part of this? It's not just I will bless you, but you shall be a blessing. And then the, the very end there, and in you, all families of the earth will be blessed. And so the covenant, going back to the very beginning, uh, let's talk about what a covenant really is. And I, it's just not really a word we really use it a lot. And... Um, and so really, I think fundamentally, if you think about it, you actually get a kind of a glimpse into uh, just what was going on, on on the nature of covenants at that time in uh, Genesis chapter 15. Because if you remember, God shows up to talk to him and to remind him that, yes, I am going to do these things. We are in a covenant arrangement, this partnership, this kind of contract of sorts. And, um, and, and in chapter 15, there's, this whole st there's a whole part of it where, where Abraham is having to like cut animals up in like on this side and that side and honestly if you're reading it and you know you don't know anything about what what the you know the culture of this time it's, it's kind of confusing really like why in the world is he having to cut up these animals well um the 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 the, the situation is uh, uh, what what happens is is that he puts animals on either side and then all of a sudden he sees like a like a flaming torch that passes through the middle well, if you go back and you look and you get some of this in Jeremiah uh, that he talks about the nature of this type of covenant arrangement is that oftentimes kings of nations would do this where they would basically imagine if we took and we cut up a bunch of animals and half of it was on this side and half of it was on this side, it would just be a bloody mess and it wouldn't be fun to look at. And what they would do is, is that they would say, let's say that they were going to enter into an arrangement, a partnership, let's say that as kings, we won't fight each other, and if somebody attacks you, I'll help you. You help me. This is our arrangement. These are the terms, and now we're walking through together between this, and such shall it be to the man that breaks this covenant. You see the visual aid there? That's what it was. It's this is what happens to the one who doesn't keep this covenant. And now the question is, in terms of this covenant, in terms of trueness and faithfulness to that covenant, is God ever going to be the one that breaks is he going to ever be the one that actually fails on his end? Well, no. But as we, as we partook this morning, we've got the blood of the new covenant. Think about it. This new covenant arrangement. Think about this blood, this new, this new covenant. Is that The thing is, was, was mankind, and maybe even more specifically to this covenant, was Israel really true to their end of that bargain? And remember what the, what the plan was. 
bless Abraham, bless the world. And so what God's vision was for Israel and for Abraham and his family was not just to have the special people that have been, you know, just get to sit off here and then watch everybody else burn. No, God is telling Abraham, no, we together in a partnership, an arrangement where I will be your God and you will be my people. What we're going to do together is we're going to bless the world and restore blessings. And we're going to undo the curse of sin. Uh, All that went wrong in Genesis chapter 3, that's the plan. But guess what happens? And, and this, is, this is kind of, it's all a part of all the different images. But what happens is, and we know the story, is that Israel doesn't do a great job when they're in that part. They fail. Go read Romans chapter 2. And if they were supposed to be the ones that uh, the next installment of this covenant was when they show up. We talked about it already. They show up on Mount, at the foot of Mount Sinai. And God says, I've saved you. I've redeemed you like I said I would. And now you've got to live by these terms. This is my law that I'm giving you, and it's a blessing for you. And, and, and if you do this, then you'll live. And if they had done it, and we're going to talk about this when we talk about the priesthood, but it would have been to the effect that all the other nations would have looked on them and said, that's a great God. I want to be a part of that. But instead, the nations blasphemed God because they started to look just like any other nation. They started installing idols in the temple. They did all kinds of things. They got off track. And so who was it that actually bore the consequence of the failure of that covenant? Whose body was broken? Whose blood was shed? We know. We know who bore the consequence of the failure of that covenant. And thank God, Jeremiah 31, that we have been brought into a new covenant. Jeremiah 31, a new covenant arrangement that God had always been. Again, this isn't a failed plan. This isn't something that went off tracks. It's God was always anticipating that this is where it's going. Jeremiah 31, verse 31, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant which I will make to the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within their heart, and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God. They shall be my people. They will not teach anyone, uh, each man his neighbor, and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forget their iniquity and their sin. I'll remember uh, no more. This is such a beautiful passage. And it's kind of confusing when you start to think, what is he talking about? They're not going to have to teach to know the Lord. Isn't that kind of part of what we should be doing? And, and I think that what, what, what you see here is that imagine, if, imagine the old Israel, the way that that works. Is that it's all based on what? On genealogy. I was born from a father who apparently, if you trace back his history far enough, he came from, from, uh, you know, from, from Gad. Who you know was was son of uh, you know from Jacob, and then it traces all the way back up to Abraham. We have the genealogy, and so I get to be a part of the special people. But what is it that every parent is going to have to do with this child? And what is it that the parents didn't do a really great job of doing? A lot of times, was they're going to have to teach. This is our God. This is the covenant. This is our arrangement. We have to be holy, for God is holy. And they didn't do that. But here's the deal on this covenant. Apparently, if you're going to be in God's covenant people, it's going to be on the very basis that we know the Lord and have come to be known by Him. What a 
What a blessing that is. And so the church, what we think about, and maybe this is the question we ask ourselves is, do we appreciate this, the new covenant arrangement that we have? Do we appreciate that he's going to remember what he said about this covenant is that he will remember our sin no more because we still sin. We still fail like the old Israel does. But God is saying, I'm going to take care of that. And do we, uh, do we appreciate and do we really show the world out there that we do know God and he's known among us? That's the question we have to ask. And, you know, well, something as far as covenants, we actually do have a, a, an example of this that kind of helps us. Is, is, and he said it right there in Jeremiah 31. What was it that he was to Israel? He was a husband to them, right? That marriage relationship, that's a covenant. That is an agreement. It's a partnership. See, the thing is, is it wasn't that God came and said, we're going to enter into a business arrangement where, you know, here's the terms of the arrangement, here's the contract, like for you to sign, I'll sign, and then you go your way, I'll go my way. That's not how his covenant was. It was like, it was a marriage relationship. And when you go and you read the prophets and you read Hosea, what you realize is that imagine how sad God was when he saw what his people were doing and how they had left him. And how they brought into the place, he says, the temple, the place where I put my name, you brought in other gods. That's how bold you were in your adultery. And you can read in Ezekiel some things that sometimes, like, I, I, there's, there's, there's passages that talk about the adulterous nature of, of Israel that are pretty graphic and, and, and the, that are, are shocking. But that, that tells you that's just how God must have felt, as if they ripped his heart out because of what he had done for them. He had only done good things. He had only been faithful. And that's the nature of, of a marriage relationship that we understand is that we've entered into this arrangement. We've entered into this agreement, and we know we can trust our, our, our mates that they're going to be faithful to us. And that's such a beautiful thing. Um, and so uh, in Ephesians chapter 5, we won't read it for time's sake, but uh, go read that. And that's, that's exactly what's described, is that what has God done for his church? Is that, um, and actually I do want to mention this because it's, it's going to the next point that we're going to make, is that it says he has, Christ, that is, he has washed her, that is the church. He has sanctified her. These are the things that God, uh, that Jesus has accomplished. And it's, it seems like what he's trying to do is, is he's trying to tell them like how husbands and wives should operate. But what he says later is, I know this is a mystery, but I'm actually speaking in reference to Christ and the church. And so as a, an aside here, I'll say, if you are married, do you realize that you have the opportunity to show the world a picture of what Christ and the church are? Is that a pretty high call? Husbands, to be like Christ? Is that, does that mean anything to you? Because it does to me. It shakes me up a little bit. It makes me realize, man, that is a great love. And if I were to do that, what a beautiful image of Christ and his church. Uh, and, and why? It's the same thing. Submitting like the church does to Christ. But look at what it says that he's done. He, uh, he loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her. That's the point I want to I come back to. Having cleansed her by washing of water in the word, uh, that he might present her to himself, the church, in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she would be holy and blameless. What was, what, what was the work that Christ did for us? Um, if we are the church... Sometimes we say, well, I'll, I guess I'll try. I'll try to be holy. I'm just, I'm not um, so much. I'm just, I'm not. And I know what we mean by that. And the sad truth is, is that we do sin. Uh, unfortunately, the blood of Christ 
uh, is there and there's mercy and there's grace. But, but what this is saying right here is that if we are the church, then we are the holy sanctified ones. Right? The saints. That's what that means. The saints weren't some special class of people that get to be elected or, or nominated and go through some sort of you know, process to make this special name so that we can have holidays about it. And that's not what it was. The saints were the people who were the separate ones. And really, that's what old Israel was supposed to be, the separate ones. And had they been true to that calling, and this goes back to look at Deuteronomy chapter 4. We've hinted at this. Deuteronomy chapter 4, look at what God's purpose was. He says, and if you read like the law, and it can be hard at times, I know. I mean, it's legal language. It can be hard for us to read, but it's thrilling if you really start to see what he's saying. What he's saying is, I'm giving you this. It's for, it's, it's for a blessing. It's for life. And it's so that you will be holy. That's what Israel was supposed to be, was his holy people, the ones who had been called out. And so then he gives them things like circumcision and the food restrictions and all these other things so that people scratch their heads and say, they're different. And then when they're invited in to look at that and say, well, they're different, why are they different? Then what they'll find, look at Deuteronomy chapter 4, what it says. See, I've taught you statutes and judgments just as the Lord my God commanded me that you should... Uh, do thus in the land where you are entering to possess it. So keep and do them, for that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, what do they say? Surely this is a great nation. Uh, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God whenever we call on him? Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as the whole law which I'm setting for you today? You see where the purpose is there? You see what Israel is all about? They are going to do this case study. They go into the land, and all of a sudden the magnifying glass gets put on them as God's holy people, so that when people see them, they say they're different. They're circumcised. They don't eat bacon, which would be tough, but they don't eat, they don't eat certain, uh, certain foods. They do things that are just different. There's something that's it's odd. Uh, and when they saw that, they'd actually be invited to look closely and, and say, well, what is exactly different about them? Well, they actually uh, do justice and righteousness as a, na a nation. Actually, they elevate the cause of the fringe members of their society. They actually help the poor and the needy. They actually do all these things that when other nations didn't care about. And what it would do, would it would magnify God and glorify Him. That was, that was what Israel should have done. But again, Romans chapter 2 says that they did the opposite. They committed adultery. Uh, they, they went away to idols. Um, all kinds, of, all kinds of problems that actually flip the script and then the nation's blasphemy God. But what this idea of them being holy, sanctified, being the saints, the sanctified, the holy ones, was that it was inviting everyone else around them to be drawn in. And there it goes back to Abraham, the covenant, the promises. Bless Abraham and his family. Bless the world. Draw them in and bring them back to God. And so guess what? That's, that's what we are. That's what we are. And, and, and actually what's really great is that God's plan, his faithfulness was so true that he actually outmaneuvered the worst of us as humans. Our best attempts to just throw it right back in his face, whether we're talking about Israel or humans in general, God outmaneuvered it to the, to the extent that he actually could use the worst thing that we could dream up to actually kill him in the worst way. I mean, think about it. The cross... It represents the worst of, of, of what's in us. Who could have dreamed up something so hard to do to another person? 
And not only did we do that, his special holy people did it. They rejected it. But that was his plan. So that he could have us to be his new covenant holy people. Which has been accomplished because of his blood. That's what we can be. And so now, the distinctive mark of the holy people is not... And that's what he's saying in that Ephesians passage. Just stop, stop worrying about circumcision, physical circumcision, and the food laws. The things that actually only drew people's attention to the fact that you weren't keeping the law. You have a new distinctive mark. It's the circumcision of your heart. As you said in Romans and Galatians, and in that passage, it's, that's what's going to define you. And so let me ask you guys this, in this place, together, is that what defines you? That circumcised heart, that spirit-led people. And I know Blake has been doing some work on preaching about the spirit. And it's not just, it's not just theology, uh, academia world we're talking about here. We know that the people who are led by the spirit, that's Romans chapter 8 and other passages, we know that those people in Galatians, uh, they're the ones who actually practice the fruit of the spirit, right? It actually manifests in their life. So that, go back to God's purpose. If we're going to bless the world, guess what you can do out here? And this is where we get into, is it, are we going to go to church or are we going to be the church? And if we are being the church, if we are administering, if we are exuding the fruit of His Spirit in a circumcised heart, then what the people out here are going to see is that that really is the people of God. And they're going to be invited in to this, to this group, to the group that's, that's everywhere, to fellowship with God Himself. That's the blessing. And that's why when people malign us, Peter will say, when they curse us, when they strike us, when government doesn't do things like they're supposed to, we don't respond in kind. Because we, therefore, can be a blessing. When somebody slaps us in the face, and we don't respond like everybody else does. Like all of the nations, the power-hungry, the greedy people have, when we respond with love. And that's what characterizes his people. In fact, isn't that why, you know, a lot of times what we'll hear is people say, well, I have a relationship with God. I don't need the church. They're a bunch of hypocrites anyway. What? God's purpose has always been about to have a people. Isn't that what it means for God to be love? Is to be a part of a, a I mean, that, that's why as hard as it is to understand about the Trinity, the Trinity is important because there is love within that complex relationship that has always existed. The Father, the Son, the Spirit, there's love. That's who God is. And so that's what characterizes us as a people. It's never meant to be me by myself. And even really me with God, even though there can be love there. It's love that, as uh, I think somebody says, the image is really good in the cross because it's what we read in uh, Ephesians 2, is that it, it removes the wall that separate, has separated me from God himself so that I can have fellowship with him. And simultaneously, it's moving all the, wall, the walls in this direction so that I've got fellowship with God now and love with him and removed and have, I have peace with him and I have peace with everybody else. And that's a beautiful thing. And so practically speaking, if you have any problems with any of your brethren, realize that what that's going to show people, and this is why it's really sad, when you get to the period of the divided kingdom in Israel's history, what a sad, sad day. And it, was, it got so bad that they actually split apart that shouldn't be in the church. If we have problems with each other, then we can resolve those with love. And when we do, that is going to be the, that, that is the gospel. Right? 
All right, uh, so I also want to mention just a, just a few more things. Kingdom citizenship. In Philippians chapter 3, it talks about this idea. And, and, and in other places, you have this idea of being sojourners, exiles. Um, and the idea is, is that we're a part of the kingdom that transcends the, the borders that separate us around the world. That's what we were talking about earlier today, right? Is that, is that it's, not, uh, it's not dependent on what country you're actually a part of. And, um, and that's what Jesus was preaching was he, was he was ushering in and saying, this is my kingdom. And so I think when we think about the Lord's Prayer and when we think about your kingdom come, I know a lot of people take issue. They say, well, the kingdom's technically already came. The church was established. Well, I think we're kind of missing the point there. Uh, is, that, is that certainly that, yes, we have become his kingdom. We are the ones that are, being, uh, that are under his rule, that, that follow Jesus as our king, right? But I think what we should be, really the point is, is what we should be inviting God to do is come in our lives and let his kingdom be administered in us and his will be done in us so that, once again, we get back to our purpose. So that they out there will see it and then they'll just be a part of it. One of the great mysteries, and, and, and again, this is just this speaks to God and the amazing beauty of his great plan and what he can do uh, with us, with broken humans, is that actually the exile, think about it, you go read exile, uh, Isaiah, it paints it as if God spread his people out, and then what can happen? No longer are they confined to the borders of a small little, uh, whatever, however big Israel is. Now all of a sudden they're, getting, they're spreading, they're amongst the nations, and then when the Spirit is poured out, like, like, it's like rain coming down. Oaks of righteousness are, are coming up in, intermingled with the nations. That's what it means to be the kingdom of God. Whatever place we find ourselves in, we can, we can show him to the world. And so practically speaking, I do want to say this, is whatever political affiliation that you're with, is it stronger than your citizenship? Yeah. Does that mean more to you? Do you think that our problems are going to be solved by electing the perfect representative? Because if we wait on that, we're going to be sorely disappointed. Right? And I'm not talking about if it, what, what's right as far as our political affiliation. What I'm saying is that what people should see first in me is Tyler the Christian. That's the identity that we wear. Doesn't mean that we have to go and, and, and say... Uh, you know, just awful things about our country or we have to say I can't actually you know, um, be involved in anything like I can't say the, you know, sing the national anthem I'm not saying any of that stuff but what I'm saying is that sometimes we mix up our citizenship sometimes we forget and sometimes we think that you know, there's things we start thinking that maybe America is God's his holy nation that's, not, that's just not it and we need to think larger than that we need to think of what the kingdom really is it's without border and then uh, finally, uh, the priesthood is another thing that we've kind of already hit on. But look at Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. Think about the fact that, that, that in Exodus chapter 19, I'm not going to go there, at, the, at this inauguration of the covenant, what we get there is that God says, what you're going to be, even though, even though, remember, there was a special tribe that's chosen, the Levites, they become the priests. From the onset, what was God's plan? For you to be a kingdom of priests. And that's exactly what Peter is saying. In Ephesians, what we're saying is that we actually become his priesthood. And what does that look like? What's our service? How are we going to represent God to the world? Well, look, 
Verse 12, verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And Peter, he says, we need to proclaim his excellencies to, to, uh, as those who have been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is our service. Giving our whole self, us, as the whole offering, the whole burnt offering, every bit of ourselves. That is our new service. That's what it means to be his priesthood. And, and if we do that, we realize, again, that the context is not just what we're doing here. Because certainly our worship together, that is a context that's anticipated in Scripture. Go read 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 and some of the problems that he says, the things that they did that were inappropriate when they gathered for worship. We make sure we understand that. But what I, what I think we also need to understand is that, again, the church, it's not confined by these walls right here. It's what we're going to go and we're going to do. It's what, it's what uh, is going to manifest when we actually give our whole lives to God. And the way that we can do that... Um, is that we can look inwardly at ourselves. We can figure out, if you read down through verse 7, what is it that we have as our own gifts um, that God has given the, the, to, according to the proportion of his faith. We, in service, if, if we have a gift of serving, then go serve. Those who teach, teach. A, a, those who exhort in exhortation, those who give, give with liberality. Those who lead with diligence. Those who show, show mercy with cheerfulness. So here's something that just... I'd like to say just again, just pause practically. Have you ever really thought about what your personal, what God has given you that's unique to you? And I'm not saying that unique in the sense that it can't be, you know, put into one of these seven buckets or, you know, seven kind of categories. I'm just saying that you are an individual made in the image of God and God has given you, and I'm talking to every single one of us in here, some ability. And the image here is that it's a body. And, and my body is being directed by my mind. You might even say my spirit. And we have a mind that's been given to us. We have Jesus as our head and his spirit has been given to us. We have the mind that directs. And so what is your ability? What is your different, varying different talents and abilities that you can do? And I'm not just talking about what you can do in this setting. I'm talking about what can you do in all settings. In all contexts, that's going to accomplish the work that we're talking about and how we represent God to this world and how we draw them in and, and bring them into his number. And then last thing, I'll just read one more passage and then we'll be done. Hebrews chapter 12, back to where we, where we started. And this is one of my favorites. Again, I, would, uh, I actually have a lesson that's just totally on us and, and the, the fact that we are his temple. Um, it's just a beautiful image because... Think about it. The temple is this convergence of the heavenly and the earthly. It's where they went to actually experience God's presence. It's a special, like, you know, think about, think about the, uh, you know, when Moses first sees the, the burning bush and he realized this is a special place. A place where those two, two worlds have, have all of a sudden converged. And that special place, then all of a sudden you have it. It's like it's almost moving. It's, it's from the burning bush and then all of a sudden top of Mount Sinai. God's presence. And then from there, God says, okay, now you're going to actually build a tabernacle where I'm going to come into. That's going to be the place. That's going to be the convergence. And all of a sudden now what we realize is that we are his temple. We are the living stones being built up. And so, and so here's, the, here's the beauty of what that means. Is that you don't have to wait to live that heavenly existence. You ever thought about that? 
There was a time in my life where I just kind of thought, you know what? It sounds pretty nice, all those images of the streets of gold and those things. And the alternative sounds pretty awful. I guess I'll suffer through all the, the, the rules. And then one day I'll have, I'll have joy in heaven. That'll be good. And certainly that's something that, that should draw us, is what, the idea of what comes next. The idea of a place where there will be no tears and no death. And God's going to make everything right of what's going to be fully fulfilled. But if we don't value the heavenly existence now, why would we think that we're going to value it for eternity? And so the idea of heaven and earth colliding in this overlap, that's what's seen in us, in his church, is that we become citizens of that heavenly kingdom. We become what the world sees as those kind of hot spots that are crossover heaven and earth are, 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 are connected. And so see to it, this is not explicit, uh, but, but we'll read and I'll explain. See to it that uh, you do not refuse him, in verse 25, who is speaking. For if those who did not, uh, did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. His voice shook the earth then, but now he's promised saying, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also heaven. I'll stop there just to say, this is a quotation from Haggai uh, chapter 2 really awesome story. And you may remember, it's when they relayed the foundation of the temple after Babylon, the Babylonians had destroyed it. They got to come back and they relayed the foundation. And you may remember that there was a mixture. There was mixed, there was mixed emotions. There were some older people. Now, you remember the younger people, they're sitting there, this is rah-rah. Yeah, the temple. Yeah, like they're just, they're cheering. But somehow intermingled with all that, what you hear is you hear the sound of crying. Why was that? Because it was people who could remember what the temple had once been. This was just, it was nothing. You know what God says? He says, you know what? Don't you worry. I want, I am going, the, the silver and the gold, I can take care of that. But there's going to be a day that, that this, yet once more in a little while, I'm going to shake uh, the earth, but also heaven itself. And in that day, I will fill my house with glory. And it's going to be a better glory, even in Solomon's temple. And so this expression yet once more denotes in verse 27, the removing those things which can be shaken, it's created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude, by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. That glory is seen in us. Glory, like think about Solomon's temple that brought queens from around the world to come and see it, to see its glory. Do you have that? Do you feel that calling to be that kind of, for God's glory to fill us as his people and for the earth to see that and to praise God because of it? And when we live that heavenly existence, that spirit-led life, that's what people see in us is that we become the living stones that are being built on each other as Jesus is our foundation, apostles and their teaching. And we do that. When we're unified and we love, um, man, God's glory is seen. And I hope that in this place that you can do it, I hope that I can do it in my place and, and the group that meets at Auburn and all over the world when we do that. Uh, it's an amazing calling for us to be his new Israel. Um, I appreciate, again, the, the opportunity. Um, and, and if there's anybody here that is, that is not a part of his household, or not a part of, his, of this country, this heavenly country, you can do that. It's the amazing thing. God's already done all the work. 
to prepare that way for you to come in and become a part of his country. It has no respect to genealogy, to nations, to any, anything. It's only the only the condition is, is that we have to believe, have faith in him, and commit to him as our king. You can do that this morning uh, as we stand and sing. Three six. In Christ alone, my hope is found.